0: is in some ways the, um, the second chance of Israel after their failure in Joshua 7 to conquer the city of Ai, <clears throat> or Ai. So I might say both ways. I, I've always learned it Ai, but um, I might say both ways. Now, if you remember in Joshua chapter 7, just to set up Joshua chapter 8, after their success at Jericho... The next city that came into the conquest of the Israelites was the city of Ai, and if you remember last time, they failed there to overcome the city and conquer it, and as it turned out, it was owing to the disobedience of one man named Achan, and because of his sin... The whole uh, Israelite people suffered, but we made the point last time that uh, clearly there was some sense in which all of Israel shared the responsibility for Achan's sin, uh, both because it was allowed to happen, so to speak, under their watch, but also, and probably uh, more uh, more pertinently, is uh, the people of Israel were, were becoming uh, lax, were perhaps not doing the sin of Achan, but thinking about doing the sin of Achan. And so we had that very stark imagery and judgment of the people of Israel um, taking Achan and his children and all of his things from oxen and donkey to all of his possessions and burning them and stoning um, Achan and, and leaving that as a memorial of why the people ought not to forsake the Lord, ought not to go against his commands. So, Having dealt with the sin that was in their midst, we're going to see here in Joshua chapter 8 what uh, is really just a second chance to do the right thing. And of course, we are going to see the success of the Israelites via this ambush at AI. Now, let me, um, I'll, it's quite a long chapter, but it's going to be a sermon that's more to do with the context and the background uh, than. Um, than uh, exposition because it's frankly a lot of narrative. It's a lot of military strategy. And for military strategy, you need maps and you need diagrams. And that's why I'd encourage you again to have uh, the the handout in front of you as we talk about that. Okay, let me begin with the opening of Joshua chapter 8. Yahweh said to Joshua, do not fear and do not be dismayed. These are familiar words that take us all the way back to the beginning of Joshua. In other words, after their sin and failure here, The Lord is reiterating, we are now, because you have rooted out the sin in your midst, we are now, again, on on these confident terms where you can trust me, and I'm going to be with you. Furthermore, Yahweh commands Joshua, Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves, lay an ambush against the city behind it. So you can't help but read this and think, ah, you have a sense of relief. You're supposed to read this and say, good. After all that had happened with Achan, and Achan unrepentant and stubborn to the very end, you see that the Lord has uh, once again turned his eye and his favor, not only upon Joshua, but upon the Israelites. And there's a little bit of irony, irony here, because God tells them this time that they may keep the spoils of the city of Ai. Remember in Jericho, they were to devote everything to destruction. The people, the women, the children, the livestock, and all of the the metals, basically, were to go into the treasury of the Lord. But here, Yahweh commands that they are to take for themselves some of the spoils, uh, primarily the livestock. And and they would need that because they are a conquering army. They don't have really a home. They don't have really any place where they can stock up uh, on their uh, provisions. And so, of course, the Lord here is providing for them along the way, take what you need from the city of Ai. And it is ironic, because if only Achan had been patient, he really could have scratched that, you know, looting itch, that here at Ai, he could have gotten the things that he thought he needed, at least to provide for himself. Uh, it might have been the case, where he had, would have had no need to feel like he needed to take something. So, uh, again, Achan's folly there is shown in that God knows how to provide for his people. He knows when to do it, he knows how to do it, and if he had just been patient, he could have had um, the spoils of Ai, which is what God had intended. Now as before, though, the people itself would be devoted to uh, destruction. In other words, that all of the men and women and children, and we discussed that issue previously when we are talking about Jericho, <clears throat> would be um, would be taken and, uh, and killed by the sword by the Israelites, including the king of Ai. And it's the first time you, you hear mention of the king of Jericho. And you have to kind of understand that um, you had these cities, and they were effectively like little kingdoms, and so the, the, the person in charge would be considered a king. But don't think of like some grand, exalted you know, ruler, emperor, Caesar, or anything like that. Um, but Jericho had a king, It had a king, And as part of the destruction, as part of the show of of the power of God, the kings themselves would be brought under uh, the sword of the Israelites. So this time, though, what is unique between Ai and Jericho is, of course, the, the strategy. Whereas Jericho had this very unique and almost absurd strategy of marching around this gigantic walled city seven times over the course of seven days and seven days on the seventh day and then blowing trumpets and all these things. Here, you have a very legitimate military strategy, classic strategy of an ambush. Uh, More specifically, they are going to bait the armies of Ai out of their fortifications and have another army lying in wait that will attack them from a second front and uh, basically pincher them in while they're out in the open. It's a classic maneuver, and it works so well here. Um, we're going to run into a little bit of an issue about the numbers involved. So let me read the next part, and then maybe you'll see what, what I'm talking about here. Um, I just keep kind of track of the numbers. Verse 3, Joshua 8.3. So try and figure out what the strategy is here, and uh, I will refer you to the maps in just a second, but you might be able to kind of see what we're talking about in terms of the geography as well. So Joshua 8.3, Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai, and Joshua chose all the fighting men. might have been up to 200,000 soldiers in the entirety of the Israelite people. And Joshua chose 30,000 from that larger group, mighty men of valor, and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city, behind it. That is the opposite side from which they're approaching. They're going to approach Ai from the east, so you're going to lay on the west side of it. Uh, Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city, And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And he's referring to the time in Joshua 7 when they tried to attack Ai, and they got routed. So we're going to pretend like we're getting routed just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for Yahweh your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to The word of Yahweh. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. That is a larger army. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley." And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel, Who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then Yahweh said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I'll give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai, and the others came out from the city against them. So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side, and Israel struck them down. "...until there was left none that survived or escaped, but the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai." But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of Yahweh that he commanded Joshua. And Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. Okay. Now, um, what I was referring to, some of the confusion about the ambush and all those things, uh, it sounds like there's a 30,000 ambush force, and there are, you know, let's say 150,000 or so of the Israelite army encamped. But then it sounds like, Five thousand are chosen to be this ambush, and um, where that thirty thousand went, it's kind of kind of nebulous. So are you kind of catching that now it's funny because commentators are basically like, "Yeah, that's kind of weird, and then they don't really try to <laughs> they're like, yeah that's, that's odd to reconcile the numbers there it's, it, it's, it is a little bit confusing, um, and, and really the confusion is uh, why would why why would you take? 150,000 or so soldiers out into this very broad field, uh, why would that not be enough for the people at AI to be like, yeah, we only have 12,000 people in our city. So why would they even go out to meet a fighting force that large? Another question is, how do you hide 30,000 people um, in, a, in a fairly small area, and we're going to look at the map in just a second. And so it just seems peculiar. And then on top of that, well, then what's the difference between the 30,000 and the 5,000? Well, let me tell you, I'll do like the commentator said. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit peculiar trying to reconcile all of these uh, different numbers of the fighting force, but the main particulars are there is a main fighting force that's baiting out all of the inhabitants of Ai who— Maybe it's 150,000 out there. Maybe it's 25,000 out there. But for whatever reason, they think they can take them. Um, Maybe it's because of the success that they saw before. For whatever reason, they're confident that they can take them all because they emptied the whole city to do it. They're that confident to leave their whole city undefended. And, of course, the fact of the matter is, is that those that were lying in ambush did successfully lay the trap and uh, overcome the city. Maybe there was a group of 5,000 Um, and a group group of 30,000 sort of, uh, you know, waiting uh, for this, you know, to to lay siege um, after the 5,000 went in, and then the rest of, I I don't know, it's, the text really doesn't try to reconcile exactly how that works, and uh, you can go to different commentators, some just say, well, really what it is, is you have a force of 30,000 on the north, and a force of 5,000 to the west, and then the bulk of the rest of the Israelite army is there, kind of in visible range, because they all, they're all the people come up from the east, from Jericho, to, um, to come to Ai. So it's not like they're just hanging back at Jericho. They're all there. So it could just be that they are all there. Um, either way, there is an ambush that is very successful that occurs here at Ai. All right? So if you want any more... Um, Deliberation about that. We can go through all the commentaries together and try to piece something. Uh, especially if you're one of those like kind of you like military battle stuff. So we can try and figure that out. But maybe the most notable thing when we look at this passage, just in terms of some spiritual import, because I don't know about you, I can't remember the last time I laid an ambush. Is you know probably when I was a kid and you know for my dad or something like you know we were just playing around and and things like that. This is not intended. To really um, be directly applicable to our lives, because I I doubt any of us are gonna be laying an ambush like this or be a general in an army anytime soon. But I, I think one of the most notable things here, though, is the reason this ambush works is because of Joshua 7, where they tried to go up against AI and they failed. So the first time they went up against Ai, they failed. Why did they fail? Because there was sin in the midst of them. So the reason that this works is that they had failed before on account of their sin. So Yahweh, I think in a way, specifically devises this ambush strategy because there was a failure that had happened that opens up this opportunity. Does that make sense? Like, because... Because the people in AI think, yeah, we 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 routed them once, we just dominated them once, that if they come at us again, we'll just do the same thing again. Another way you could put that is that um, God is using their failure to set up the success. God is using something that was sinful, that they had done, and still using that sinful thing that happened, the consequences of it to produce something. Good. I think we can say that, um, that, that this is something God is trying to demonstrate and show to the Israelite people, and I think this is also, of course, a spiritual lesson for us, that there are often times where we sin, and the grace of God is such that even our sin, God can use for his glory. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean that I'm justified in sinning or that God needs us to sin first in order to do something good, only that we can have a sense of relief and hope and and comfort knowing that if I do sin, it's not the end of God's purpose and plan for me. It's not as if God says, well, I'm stuck now. You you disobeyed me once, Israelites. You screwed up at AI. I'm not going to work with you ever again. He doesn't do that. Once there's repentance and confession, Yahweh is very quick to reassure Joshua, I'm with you. Very quick to give Joshua commands again and expect him to obey. And of course, very quick to give them the victory. So I think there's something to that, that we can say or appreciate that um, maybe you feel like you screwed up your, your, your college years. You just messed up real va- bad. You, you went uh, sideways and you, you forsook the Lord, and now you've come back to him, and you just have tremendous regret about those things that you did, or or, or maybe you got um, a first marriage, and, and it just didn't go well, and all those things, um, God can redeem that pain. God can redeem that sin, and use doesn't mean that it's okay that you sinned, but the grace of God is that um, perhaps the experience of that can set up some success for you later, something where you learned and grow, grew from it, something where you could even bless someone else uh something that um, that gives you a perspective on the faithfulness of God so it doesn't mean that we ought to sin <laughs> just to get that you know uh, have God redeem it but uh it's 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 a promise and a hope that there is a second chance so another thing i think we can see from this just in terms of some uh, spiritual blessing is um Joshua tells the Israelites, you shall do, in verse uh, 8, you shall do according to the word of Yahweh, see, I have commanded you. And I I appreciate that because when we were talking about Joshua 7, one thing that was noticeable is that there's no, like, commands that God gives about how they should sack Ai. And we said it last time, well, maybe it's an indication, perhaps, that Joshua did not seek the Lord's wisdom on what to do with Ai. And, and uh, somewhat left to his own devices, he made a call, and, and uh, not realizing it, there was sin in the midst. Maybe st- if, again, this is conjecture, but maybe when Joshua didn't hear from the Lord about what to do with Ai, he should have said, oh, maybe there's something wrong. Maybe there's some kind of sin going on I'm not aware of amongst the people. In any case, it is a relief here to see these words, that he <clears throat> is Uh, coming to the Israelites as a leader to say, I have heard from God, and here's what he says. And there should be no greater assurance for us than to know that God is the one giving us the commands and that the only burden on our shoulders is to do what God has commanded. In other words, as uh, anyone that has any kind of spiritual leadership in your life, um, the, the best thing that they could ever be doing is say, you shall do according to the word of Yahweh, See, I have commanded you, uh, meaning that the the only thing I could ever tell you to do in your life with any kind of authority is only that which God has said, and no more and that is a, a blessing um, you probably know when it the burden of someone laying on you an expectation beyond what the Word of God has said, uh, the kind of churches that are produced when from pulpits and and from the the ministry of the leaders, the elders, the pastors, are expectations beyond what Scripture has recommended. Um, It it creates a burden. It's just like the Pharisees who uh, Jesus regularly condemned for adding a burden to the people that they were not themselves willing to lift. So, it is uh, fortunate to hear those words once again. You know, Israelites, all that God wants you to do right now you are facing, again, another city. It's another fortified city for that matter. You have a little uh, picture of it uh, in, your, in your notes there. Uh, something like 15-foot wide walls and like 40-foot tall, 40-foot uh, high walls. Um, and, and God is saying, listen, all you have to do is do what I say. It's as simple as that. You know, you got a complicated marriage, you got, you got a complicated relationship with your family members, you don't know how to deal with your boss and all those things. You know what? What does the Lord say clearly? Start there. Start with the things that God has said clearly to do and start obeying that and see what happens. See what happens when you let all bitterness and slander and clamor, like we're talking about today, is, is out of your vocabulary. See what happens when you talk to your loved ones and those who are have tense relationships with in that way. So, um, let's talk about AI for a little bit. And the reason we want to talk about this is for the first half of the 20th century, two archaeologists, William Albright and uh, Joseph Calloway, they had claimed that El Tel or Et Tel, which on your maps there, sort of in the middle of the of the map, that Et was the location of biblical AI. Now, the problem is that they found no evidence of anyone even having lived there at the time of Joshua. Now, what's the problem if there's no one living at Ai at the time of Joshua? There's no one to conquer. <laughs> there's no conquest. These events then did not happen, and that is exactly what they claimed. Um, these two men claimed then that the Bible is wrong, and then for uh, Many years, people would point to these brilliant archaeologists. You see, the Bible has errors. And pastors and Bible teachers and very well-meaning churches, they had to say, you know, it's unfortunate, but um, here it sounds like, you know, they get to these chapters of the Bible. And what do you say when these archaeologists have said, you know, there's no one living there at the time of Joshua. This is just made-up stories and myths. How can you have any confidence in the Word of God? So after that, there was a group of uh, men and and significant was uh, within this group called the Associates for Biblical Research um, that decided, well, they probably have it wrong because we think the Bible, when it has given us information about geography and and archaeology, it has been confirmed many times. So they reexamined the evidence and they looked at the area uh, again. And they all but confirmed that the biblical site of Ai is actually about a kilometer to the west of Etel, which is a location known as Kirbet el Makatir, right, and that's all on your map right there. Primary in their determination was the discovery of a fortress at that very location with a gate that lie to the north. And again, with walls about 15 feet wide, 40 to 50 feet high, they actually found the the kind of uh, the the stones that would hold the, um, the 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 rod that the gates would swing on. They found these huge holes, and as they excavated further, they found basically the foundation of a gigantic fortress. Again, 15 foot wide walls, about 40 50 feet high. And as they looked around, there was no such thing. There's no fortress, no one, like almost no sign of anyone living there until later at, at Tell. But here they look and there's a gigantic fortress here with the gate again lying to the north. Um, not only that, they discovered pottery. And that's in archaeology one of the best, most accurate ways to date a site in the ancient Near East, that region is through pottery they demonstrated that there was a population there of men and women at this fortress or this fortress city about the late Bronze Age, which is 14 to 1500 BC, which is the time of Joshua. So they found a fortress at this site. They found evidence of people living there exactly at the time of Joshua. But they also started looking at the surrounding geography. Does this fit? You have kind of specific geographical indicators in the text here of where Ai would have been. And here again, that location at El Makatir also fit the biblical narrative perfectly. Again, the text says that there was basically a split. Again, the the numbers don't have dialed in just, just yet. But you basically have to have a northern kind of valley and then a western one one that seems shallower than the other one because the, the one in the west needs to be somewhat uh, deep in order to hide a bunch of soldiers, and the one in the north needs to be actually a little bit more uh, obvious because that's the direction that they were going to bait the uh, inhabitants of Ai to come out from. Now, you can see on the map there that there is a deep valley to the west of Ai. It's called Wadi Shaban, and a shallower shallower one to the north, it's called Wadi el-Gaye. And of course, to the far west, you see a city called um, el Bireh, which would be the biblical site of, they say, Bethel. So you see that the geography very much lines up there. Um, And I know this might seem like a little bit extra, um, but if you look at this one, it's a Google Earth map, so it's on the back side. Um, the point of this is to kind of show you the elevations of these things. So if you notice, um, that red line on the Google Earth map is this same red line that's in the elevation map. And you can tell AI sits... Sort of on a little hill, which most cities did. And you can see that Joshua says he was encamped kind of on the other side of a valley. You see that, that's uh, Wadi Gaye. Um, And then on the other side of Ai, you have a hill, and then it goes into a deeper, there's about a, from the top to the bottom, the highest point there to the bottom is about 400 feet. you would have this valley where Ai would not be able to see into it, both because there's a little hill and because it's so deep. But, of course, if you had a scout up on this hill, they would easily be able to see Ai and easily be able to see Joshua on a hill. It's only about three-quarters of a mile. And if he was, you know, waving a javelin in his hand. So, in other words, this location seems to exactly match the geography and the description of the biblical city of Ai, in which case we can say, once again confidently, that the Bible is depicting real, actual places, real, actual events. Um, It should be noted that Joseph Calloway, and there's another um, famous archaeologist by the name of Kenyon, uh, they're sort of skeptical, skeptical of the Bible, and so they had that lens on um, Dr. Kenyon, she was one who uh, researched Jericho as well and would come to these conclusions. Well, this couldn't possibly be the biblical uh, or fit in with the biblical narrative. And that's what Joseph Calloway did. And unfortunately, in the early parts of the 20th century, when, when these archaeologists, and we're talking just about one or two people, said that um, because of their credentials, it just everyone took that as fact, as faithful. So you're talking about three people, essentially, that convinced everybody, yeah, the Bible must be false. And um, that's the way it is. Archaeology can be a little bit of a small world, especially back then. Um, But they had that kind of weight. And for decades, you had pastors essentially having to concede that the Bible might have errors in it. Well, I can tell you that it's almost certain that this location here Um, is the biblical city of Ai with exactly the kind of geography and the the fortifications that one would expect, just as the Bible describes. If you want to know more, by the way, um, you can just go to the Associates for Biblical Research website or their YouTube channel, and they have a ton of stuff about this site, about Kirbet um, el Makatir, because, again, it, it represents one of those very confident assumptions that secular... You know, scientists were very vocal about saying, this is why you can't believe your Bibles. No, this absolutely undermines the fact that uh, that the Bible is true, and then for them to be proven uh, wrong. Um, and sometimes the, the lie got around the world faster. You know, they say that the the lie gets around the world before the truth has even put its shoes on. So sometimes uh, sometimes that happens here. But I, I want you to be confident that the Word of God is true, uh, and that this this actually indeed happened, just as the Bible text describes. Now, so the rest of Joshua eight, frankly, is everything going according to plan. There, the whole plan goes off without a hitch. There's 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 um, almost very little to say about this once you describe and read the text. So um, this is going to be a little bit shorter sermon today. Uh, What can we learn? What can we learn? Well, I already mentioned a couple things at the beginning of the sermon um, about um, being thankful that the Lord would use even their sin and even their failure to have this plan of an ambush, which only works because they had sinned. There was sin, and and they got routed. So let's be thankful for that. We already talked about how Joshua now is leading the people, and he can say with confidence This is what the Lord commands. I'm telling you nothing more and nothing less than what Yahweh wants from us. You know, just do this and we will succeed. And of course, we see the fruit of it when they simply obeyed the Lord. What great success that they were brought to them. We also see, just by way of the archaeology and taking some time, you can trust the Bible. When it speaks of historical events, when it speaks of biographical events, when it speaks of geographical locations, when it speaks of people and times and cities, it is reflecting real historical fact. And it's not like, it's not like um, you know, John Grisham novels. It, it, it's, it's not like um, historical fiction and thrillers where they kind of use the backdrop. Of history to tell you know a story um, you know I forgot uh, who, Tom Clancy you know he has all these you know really uh, exciting books that when you read them uh, even people in the CIA would say how does he know so much about how the CIA works this, someone is telling him what are you know what's going on um, and he talks about real events and real places but of course these are made up characters that he is inserting into these real, you know, historical events and places and people. Now, the writer of Joshua is not trying to sell you a historical fiction. That actually kind of genre doesn't really exist at, at the time, uh, for one thing. Um, but this is being purported as truth. From the beginning to the end, this is being told and and. And held by the Jewish people as their actual history, so we don 't use Tom Clancy novels to teach history. I hope not i don 't know maybe 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 we get there as a nation where we just use like you know fiction now to to, to tell our peoples uh, the history of this nation and the world. but um, there is not any sense of that when you read any of the Bible that any of it from from Joshua, to Judges, to Samuel, to Kings, to the Gospels, to Acts, there's no sense in which any of this is being uh, sold or labeled as historical fiction. Yes, this is rooted in the time of, uh, of, the, uh, of Herod, or you know, as we saw in actually in our studies in Luke, where Pastor Chris did a great job going through all of the historical figures that were alive at the time. That is not just to heighten our sense of the historical fiction. It's being purported as truth and fact. So, the Bible is a true, accurate reflection, and biblical archaeology has, or archaeology has, oftentimes depended upon the Bible. It's not the other way. Is that you often find that archaeologists um, have to match up their findings to Scripture because it's so consistent than the other way. So we see that you can trust your Bible. One last lesson or, or thought: How do we deal with? Success and failure. How do you deal with success and failure? When the Israelites failed to take Ai the first time, Joseph, or Joshua's response was to uh, be utterly stricken. Remember, he tore his clothes. He put dust on his head. What is wrong? Why have you done this? He goes to the Lord. He asks the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. He begs the Lord, and the Lord responds. There's a humility and repentance on Joshua's part, um, and of course, in obedience to him. You know, that, that should really strike us in our core that when we fail as Christians, and we will, we will have our aching moment like we talked about last week, the Lord has a really good track record of being willing to raise us up again. You could look at all the way at the beginning from Adam and Eve. Was it you sinned? that's it, you guys are done, I'm starting over. No, he gives them a hope and a promise. He expects them to get up and then walk in obedience to him. You, you could uh, speak of, of almost any hero, Moses, David. The Old Testament is full of the Samson, of, of men and women who sinned, but God didn't just say, guess, that's it, you know, you're done. When they repented, When they looked to the Lord, God was happy to give them opportunities to continue to serve him. You look to the New Testament, and you see uh, Peter, who denied the Lord three times, being restored by Jesus, being expected to continue in the ministry, not to be defined by his failure, but to be defined by his uh, redemption. And so he continues on. You have smaller instances of that, like John Mark, if you remember him. He caused a dispute between Barnabas and Paul. You know, Barnabas wanted to take him. Paul said, no, you can't trust this guy. And we see at the end of Paul's ministry that John Mark was someone that ended up becoming dear to Paul. So we do see time and again throughout the scripture that when we fail, that doesn't have to be the end of it. There is a second chance and more often than not a third and a fourth and a fifth chance as well. God kind of has an expectation that we would, when we fail, to know that he is sovereign means that we can get up, ask for forgiveness, repent, and then keep honoring the Lord. And that he can even use our failures for some good. That should always be a motivation for us to view our failures in a way uh, that trusts the Lord as well. Again, not to be defined by failure, but defined by the redemption that God has made for us in Christ. Because Christ looks like, when you see him, it looks like failure. It looks like defeat. It looks like even worse than the kind of military upsets that we're going to see in Joshua again, where they are defeated. That's what the cross looks like, is, is there can be no coming back from this. This is done. This is over. God has failed. We've all failed. But for Jesus Christ to rise from the dead, to Um, To leave that grave empty means that we don't ever have to let failure define our life of faith. That's good. What should we do when we have times of success? Um, Hopefully you also experience moments where, um, you know, you did do things the right way. You did honor the Lord, and you're excited to see that the Lord has blessed and honored you we're going to look at that next time. <laughs> what does it look like when we succeed? Well, just as a little bit of a spoiler, uh, Joshua is going to build an altar and they're going to worship and they're going to renew their commitments to the Lord. So think about this. Whenever you have a success from the Lord, what is your attitude in your heart? Is it to, you know, just heap all the praises for yourself and, you know, um, and, uh, and, and, and think how wonderful and great you are, or like, the Israelites like Joshua, to recommit, Lord, that victory was only because you're good and great. And what I need to do now is just to keep committing myself to you. But we'll talk about that next time. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, we can see in in the life of the Israelites, success, failure, see your forgiveness, your goodness, your faithfulness, to see ourselves as those who, who need those commands of the Lord, even when we've stumbled and fallen, to to be reminded that the fact that you would still give us commands means you're not done with us yet, and that we have an opportunity to get up, to confess, and then continue on in faithfulness and in walking in your ways. And I pray, Lord, if... Perhaps uh, anyone listening to this has has gotten on a wayward track and and just thinks, well, I've gone so far in my sin or my uh, my lostness that, God, uh, you must be done with me. I pray that you might convict and encourage those hearts uh, with this idea that we are not defined by our failure. Um, We don't have to be anyway. That uh, the very reason Christ came and died and rose again is to redeem those failures and make something good. Of something so bad. That's the message of the cross. So I pray, Lord, you'd encourage us that way. I pray you'd also encourage us. I hope that some of us are having a, a good, uh, some success in our faith and in our life, and that that would encourage us not to get proud and not to, to forsake you, but to further trust you, to further glorify you, to recommit ourselves to you. So thank you, Lord, for uh, for these lessons, though uh, maybe brief here in, in uh, what's a very strategic, military strategic passage, uh, to still give you thanks and praise and honor and glory. And I pray, Lord, you bless our time as we eat and, and drink and as we fellowship and one another and the rest of our time together. May you be honored and glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you all. I know it's a little bit shorter